This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Republican lawmakers are looking to protect internal combustion engines in Wisconsin. The state assembly passed two bills along party lines today that would stop state and local governments from banning gas-powered cars and other vehicles, the Associated Press reports. Snowblowers, lawnmowers, and other machines would also be covered. The legislation comes in response to a recent law in California that requires all new cars, trucks, and SUVs sold in the state to run on electricity or hydrogen by 2035. No similar bans have been proposed in Wisconsin, but Assembly Republicans say the bills would protect consumers from, quote, runaway state bureaucrats. Democrats dismiss the proposals as fear-mongering. The state Senate has yet to vote on them, and Democratic Governor Tony Evers is considered likely to veto the bills. Republicans on the state legislature's powerful finance committee are again objecting to the governor's plans for spending opioid settlement funds to combat surging fentanyl use. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the Republican-controlled Joint Finance Committee filed a letter today rejecting $8 million in proposed spending by the State Department of Health Services. This money was allocated to cover overdose reversal medications, fentanyl testing strips, and other efforts to battle the ongoing opioid crisis. It's part of a $500 million legal settlement the state expects to get from opioid manufacturers and other parties over two decades. The committee's Republican chair said in a statement that some of their members have concerns about how effective the proposed drug interventions are. The committee blocked $31 million in similar opioid spending last fall before eventually approving a modified plan. Dane County is now just the fourth county in the nation to power all of its municipal facilities with 100% renewable energy. That's thanks to the newly completed Yahara Solar Project, the county said in a press release. The 90-acre solar farm in the town of Cottage Grove has 30,000 panels on county-owned land. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi highlighted the alternative energy milestone during an Earth Day celebration at the solar installation today. He called it a, quote, landmark achievement in our fight against climate change. The 17-megawatt solar project will produce more than 36 million kilowatt-hours of renewable electricity per year, according to the county. That's comparable to the power use used by 3,000 homes. A State Street bar could be facing disciplinary action after illegally serving nearly 100 underage patrons last fall. City Bar on the 600 block of State Street faced scrutiny back in September after 137 underage drinking citations were issued in a single night, reports WKOW-TV. Adam Greenberg, manager of the restaurant bar, has agreed to cooperate with the city's requests and will attend a hearing before the city's Alcohol License Review Committee tomorrow night to receive whatever consequences follow for its future operations. The Madison Metropolitan School District has tapped a veteran administrator to serve as interim superintendent. The Capital Times reports that Lisa Kavistad will take over the role starting on June 12th with a year-long contract. The school board voted 7-0 to approve the hire yesterday. Kavistad takes over from Superintendent Carlton Jenkins, who announced in February he would retire this summer after just three years on the job. Kavistad was the district's assistant superintendent for teaching and learning before she retired in 2021. She also served as a principal at LVM and Lowell Elementary Schools and as the director of state and federal programs during her two decades at MMSD. And now on today's top stories. Workers at a Starbucks on State Street announced today that they are seeking to form a union in response to poor treatment from upper management. 
They are the second Starbucks store in Madison and the fifth in Dane County to announce a union. WORT reporter Abigail Levin spoke with Starbucks employees this afternoon. Today, I visited the Starbucks on State Street. And for a while, I watched business go on just as it normally would. But it was hard to miss the buttons on the employees' aprons and the table of people with stickers and buttons reading Starbucks Workers United. Matt Cartwright, a Starbucks shift leader and union organizer, says Starbucks upper management has behaved very unethically. Just a complete disconnect from their day-to-day partners to the decisions they were making. Um, just feeling like you had no voice and no respect. Cartwright has tried to go directly to HR and upper management about his concerns. These concerns include their creation of strict hours requirements and suddenly firing managers. And he received threats and ultimatums. Another shift supervisor, Alec Seguin, noticed that it doesn't feel like he has a say in anything that happens at Starbucks. Once it gets to a little bit of a higher level, there have uh, been some troubles where it, it doesn't really feel like we have a place at the table. And I think that's one of the issues that really spurred us or really moved us into like action. So their store is organizing a union. The State Street store sent a letter to Starbucks CEO Laxman Narasimhim Tuesday morning to let him know they plan to join Workers United. Cartwright says technically Starbucks now has the opportunity to voluntarily let them join the union. But if they say no, and Cartwright assumes they will, the State Street store will file with the National Labor Relations Board. The NLRB will then hold an election to determine if they are eligible for a union. According to Cartwright, this process can take up to five to eight weeks. So for now, they are trying to spread awareness. Mackenzie Fitzpatrick, who is also a shift supervisor at the State Street store, says the community should watch the news to stay updated and support their local Starbucks. Customers can speak to baristas and encourage union efforts. Fitzpatrick says even talking to Starbucks employees about it can go a long way because they are trying to spread the word. Evan McKenzie, a representative from the other unionized store in Madison at Capitol Square, says that it is empowering to see so many workers uniting over a common cause. This is young people, this is students, it's the Madison community saying, no, like we, we are in control of making our lives better. And Abby Marcus, a barista at the State Street Starbucks, agrees that doing something about the problem is the best way to fix it. And it just got to a point where we really were left with no choice but to do something about it. In a statement to WORT, a Starbucks representative said they are committed to a fair process in ensuring that employee voices are heard. They said that if the State Street store votes to unionize, they plan to meet with Workers United, an affiliate of the Service Employees International Union, for a single-store collective bargaining process. This comes as baristas at hundreds of Starbucks shops across the U.S. have organized for a union in the past few years. The first Starbucks in the U.S. to become unionized in Buffalo, New York, cast their yes votes just a year and four months ago, in December 2021. Other Starbucks shops have followed suit. Workers at the Starbucks on the Capitol Square announced that they'd seek to unionize in March of last year. Starbucks in other Wisconsin cities like Plover, Oak Creek, and Green Bay have also sought to unionize, reports the Badger Herald. Former Starbucks chief executive Howard Schultz appeared in a Senate hearing in March, facing accusations of the company violating labor laws and attempts to shut down unionization. According to NPR, Schultz denied these accusations and later stepped down as interim CEO. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. 
Last year, City of Madison officials approved a site for a permanent men's homeless shelter on Bartolin Drive on the east side. But the 40,000-square-foot plan facility may be expanded, with a resolution being introduced tonight to buy the property next door. WRT producer Nate Weggehout has more. In their first meeting as a newly minted Common Council this evening, Alders will consider a resolution to purchase a property next to the lot designated by the city as the home for the new permanent men's homeless shelter. The current property, situated at 1902 Bartillon Drive, contains around 92,000 square feet of land. But with the property next door at 3709 Kinsman Boulevard, they would add another 38,000 square feet to the property that will one day be home to the city's first purpose-built permanent men's shelter. Under the resolution, the city would buy the property, which is currently home to a shuttered McDonald's restaurant, for $650,000. Matt Wachter is the director of the city's Planning and Community and Economic Development Division. He says that, put simply, buying the land will simply give them more room to work with. In doing our site evaluation of the site that we're building the shelter on, the architects made it clear that having some flexibility on exactly where that lot line would fall would, uh, you know, just give us some more options when it comes to our building orientation, site circulation, having space to um, potentially put in a geothermal field. Wachter says that the space would also give them space in the future if they were to ever expand. However, he says that they currently do not have any specific plans for the new McDonald's site. In March of last year, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway announced that they had decided to build a new shelter from scratch at 1902 Bartillon Drive on the city's east side. While the plan faced some initial pushback on how Rhodes-Conway announced the proposal, the plan was eventually passed by a unanimous vote. The city would tear down the current buildings at 1902 Bartillon Drive and 3709 Kinsman Boulevard and in its place build a 40,000-square-foot facility with space to house around 200 people. Wachter says that the facility will also house services for folks to get into permanent housing, though the city has not come to a final decision on what those services would look like. An architect has been hired who's doing, you know, test fits, but also interviewing service providers and things like that to really get a handle on, you know, what those space needs are, how to, they, I think just yesterday they were touring shelter sites in, in Minneapolis that were purpose-built new construction. So we're, we're very much in the design fact-finding side of things. Construction on the permanent men's shelter is expected to begin next year. In the meantime, a temporary shelter on Zaire Road will remain open until construction of the permanent shelter is complete. Tonight's council meeting will begin at 6.30, where the resolution to buy the property will be officially introduced. It will then head to the city's finance committee next Monday and back to the council for a final vote next Tuesday. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. The City of Madison is implementing a program to provide free Metro bus passes for middle and high school students in the district. WORT reporter Jessica Lindahl has more. Madison's middle school to high school students are getting free bus transportation. That's thanks to the return of a program from the City of Madison and the Madison Metro School Transit, which seeks to support youth who are traveling to their summer jobs, internships, or other summertime activities. Speaking at a press conference yesterday, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway outlined the need for workable transportation for students. It's an investment in our young people, 
preparing them today with vital community readiness skills and giving them access to opportunity and to independence. And it's an investment in our future, building our economy, our transit system, and our community. It's the third year that this program has run, and the number of students participating in the program has grown each year along with the number of rides. MMSD students took almost 38,000 rides in 2021. And in 2022, that increased to over 40,000 metro rides by MMSD students in just one summer. The free bus passes are set to go to more than 7,000 middle and high school students this summer. According to a list of fares posted on the Metro Transit's website, a normal youth bus ride costs $1.25. A summer youth bus pass for those 5 through 17 or still in high school typically costs $35. Angie Hicks is the principal of the James C. Wright Middle School. She highlighted the eco-friendly nature of the program. As a school district, we talk a lot about environmental sustainability, and we know being responsible environmental stewards is important to our scholars. We are grateful to the city that they are giving this, them this opportunity to help bring their values to life. Students will receive their bus passes in May. They can pick up their passes in their school's student office. If that's not possible, the passes will also be available at summer semester sites or the Metro Transit office on East Washington. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jessica Lindahl. Earlier this year, the University of Wisconsin two-year college in Richland Center announced that it was closing the campus due to low enrollment. Now the two-year UW campus in Washington County is considering a merger with a nearby tech school. With these changes, UW System President Jay Rothman is calling for an audit of all UW campuses to determine their viability. Earlier today, WRT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Kimberly Wethel, higher education reporter with the Wisconsin State Journal, about what's happening on branch campuses across the UW system. Now, just to begin, Kimberly, can you break down quickly for me what happened at the Richland Center campus and at the Washington County campus? Yeah, so this is not necessarily isolated to Richland County, um, to Washington County. This is something that's being seen all over the state with the two-year branch campuses that were formerly the UW colleges. Every single, almost every single one has had pretty precipitous declines. And in recent years, a few of them have started to come back. But for the most part, enrollment at these two-year schools has been declining with not a lot of end in sight. For Richland specifically, uh, enrollment declines were the steepest there. They were down about 90% from 2014 when they had about 560 students. And this fall, they were left with about 60 students left on campus. So they had the steepest fall. Uh, but Washington County was not is not far behind. They've seen about 70% of their students disappear in the last 10 or so years. And has anyone given out any reason as to possibly why these campuses are seeing uh, lower and lower enrollment numbers? Yeah, one thing that's being cited, and I don't know if it's the entire problem, but it's certainly part of the problem, is demographic issues, right? There are just simply fewer high school students 
graduating and uh, looking to go into higher education than there were 10 years ago. So that's definitely a part of the issue. You know, university officials have also cited that the high cost of college might also be scaring students away, um, which is why they're looking to, you know, introduce the um, Wisconsin promise that would pay for tuition at all of the UW schools that are not UW-Madison, which already has its own Bucky's promise. So those are two reasons, but there are others um, that certainly play into it. And now, as I said before, uh, System President Rothman is now calling for an audit for the, quote, viability of these campuses. What does that mean, auditing the viability, and what would that all entail? Yeah, so Rothman told me yesterday that this is not not only due to Richland ending classes and Washington considering a new path. This is also part of their larger strategic plan. So um, while those two campuses have either, you know, they're preparing to stop classes or they're looking for different options, they're not the only reason why they're doing this. But an audit would basically look at their financial and their operational systems and identify issues there. So one of the big ones that we've already talked about is enrollment, right? You know, if you don't have the enrollment there, you don't have the funding there to sustain it. So that's one of the things that they are really looking at um, as they're doing this audit. And they're looking at what solutions are out there that could maybe fix some of the problems. What, what could they do with maybe consolidating campuses? Basically what, you know, Jay Rothman told me is that everything is on the table unless it kind of vague since they're in the just, they're just starting this process now. And in your story, you mentioned that this won't be any sort of one-size-fits-all solution, correct? Tell me a little bit about that. I think as they refer to a one-size-fits-all solution, they're maybe calling back to the 2018 decision to just consolidate all of the UW colleges under the four-year universities, and that was meant to kind of shore up some of these universities. And that was kind of a one-size-fits-all. Everyone's going to be placed under a receiving four-year university, and hopefully that will turn things around. That's not always been the case based on where you are. So as they're looking at kind of localizing solutions, they're looking at, you know, what's going to work in UW-Green Bay versus what's going to work in UW-Plattville, what's going to work for UW-Eau Claire, and see kind of what those communities need. And so UW-Green Bay's solution might be different than what UW-Milwaukee needs. And so basically, you know, as they're looking to, to regionalize solutions, I think what they're trying to undo maybe some of the, if they want to call it a mistake, <laughs> some of the mistakes they have made in the past, assuming that one decision across the system was going to be able to solve everything. And now some of these branch campuses are actually seeing some bounce back. And you mentioned uh, UW-Green Bay, and that's one of those branch campuses. What's what's happening there? Yeah, so what's happening there is that they UW-Green Bay is adopting a one university, four locations mentality. And kind of what that means is that they're, they don't see the Green Bay campus as the main campus and that Marinette, Sheboygan, and Manitowoc are just add-ons. They're seeing these campuses as, you know, all a part of this one group and they are offering different degrees at each of these campuses based on what they need, right? But so the, the slight downside there is that, you know, their accreditation is changing a little bit and that's going to require them to raise tuition because it's such a different accreditation. 
but that's what's working for them. They've also announced a dual enrollment where they've got their Phoenix Rising program where they're working with local high schools in the area, and they're often getting high school students their associate's degrees before they even graduate with their high school degrees. So that's just what's simply working in in the Green Bay area. Um, some of the enrollment has been a little bit more flat <laughs> based on which campus you're at. Some of it has gone up a little bit more, but that's just one of the options that UW would be looking at to maybe see where that would work for all of their other for all of their other campuses. But like I said, everything's on the table, and what works at UW Green Bay may not work elsewhere. I've been talking with Kimberly Wethel, higher education reporter with the Wisconsin State Journal, about the call by UW System President Jay Rothman for a viability audit of the system's branch campuses. You can read all of Kimberly's reporting on the subject online over at Madison.com. Kimberly, thank you so much for talking with me today. Absolutely. It's been great talking with you. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Big Brothers Big Sisters of Dane County has been matching grown-up mentors with children for over 50 years, and now the group is searching for new volunteers. They're also sponsoring a countywide scavenger hunt to get people out to see their community. On yesterday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with Tracy Anderson and Bethany Ordaz with Big Step Brothers Big Sisters of Dane County about what makes somebody a good mentor. First off, tell us, what are the kinds of things that Big Brothers Big Sisters looks for in a mentor? Um, it's pretty simple. <laughs> not a lot of uh, qualifications. It's nothing fancy. It's We're not tutoring. There's nothing special that you need to do with the child you're matched with other than spend time. So it could be anything from just being going for a walk, getting ice cream. It could be helping with homework or school things. Uh, could be going to their basketball game. But it's really just spending that one-on-one quality time, assuring them that adults care about their future and that someone is available just, just to spend time and talk with them. So a lot of the kids we serve are from single-parent households, maybe have multiple siblings, and just need, need one adult to spend a little extra time with them. What kinds of traits, you know, personality traits or other things, do you, makes for a good big brother or big sister, Tracy? You know, it's really just all about spending quality time. You know, our mission is to create and support one-to-one mentoring relationships. So, you know, spending two to four times a month, anywhere between one to three hours, is great for a child. Uh, and we do have match support specialists, and they take the big and little hobbies, activities, and interests, like where they live, and that's how they match them. So the matches last on average up to four years. So, yeah, I mean, they they usually find some things in common or they learn some things that, that they can do just from spending time together. And how do you find littles? Um, so littles, uh, a parent or guardian can actually go online and submit that they want their child to have a mentor. And then as far as bigs go, the way that I try to find those, I mean, that is my main role is just being out in the community and recruiting. So that's where we really have the need is just recruiting big because we, we have close to 200 littles that are currently waiting to be matched. 
Now, Bethany, uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters is sponsoring a scavenger hunt called simply The Hunt. Tell us about that. What's, what's that involve? Yeah, we started The Hunt. Uh, this will be our third year. Um, we traditionally do a bowling event every spring, which we also still do. But during the pandemic, uh, that wasn't a possibility to get people indoors at the bowling alley. So we were trying to be creative, and uh, we decided that it would be fun and safer if we were outside and um, doing a little scavenger hunt. It started small with uh, just taking a few photos and silly videos. And three years ago, we hooked up with a scavenger hunt app called Goose Chase, and we developed like a larger event. It's three weeks. It is uh, running around Dane County taking photos at specific geographic locations. You know, could be the state capitol, could be the Mustard Museum in Middleton. And it really gets you out and about in the county and having fun and finding little gems that even though you live here, you probably didn't know that there was a slide in the west side of Madison sort of hidden in a neighborhood. Um, So it's kind of fun, and it's also a fundraiser, so you get points for fundraising. It also has missions that involve acts of kindness and other ways to promote big brothers big sisters you know we give everybody a t-shirt so when they're running around outside in the county everyone's wearing a big brothers shirt and it's just a lot of fun and um, a little bit competitive for those that want to compete and win some prizes Um, and it's just been a great way to engage um, our supporters and and yeah uh, again just i mean come on by may i mean look outside today there's snow outside by may everyone's (laughs) ready to go outside and have a little bit of fun Um, so yeah it's just a, a great way to uh, raise some money for our program and um, yeah, get everybody out having fun. Our program is completely free to the kids and families we serve, so all the money raised through events like the hunt goes directly back into the program. And, and what are some of the uh, more unusual things that people are asked to look for in the scavenger hunt? Well, it's, um, it's, it's not a lot really unusual. It's just things that you might not know are there. Like, for instance, the Dream Park out in Cottage Grove has these cute little gnomes in there. And if you don't have little kids, like, maybe you're not out playing at the park. Um, you know, maybe you've never been to the Mustard Museum or that you didn't know there was a miniature Statue of Liberty out at Warner Park on the north side. It's just like a fun way. Like, if you live, you know, in Sun Prairie, maybe you don't get out to Oregon very much, you know? So it's just a fun way to be like, this stuff isn't that far away. And and we do service all of Dane County. And we want people to realize, like, there's so much that you can do here in Dane County. And, you know, as you're looking for uh, mentors, do you have needs in particular geographic areas? Tracy, are there particular parts of the county that have a particular need for bigs? You know, um, what comes to mind to me is Stoughton. I know that we've got a big need in Stoughton and, like, on the east side as well. So I know those are some of the areas that come to mind right away. And then I think, like, as far as, like, different ways that we're just trying to focus on the different areas, too, we kind of, like, run a report just to see some of the areas that are most in need and try to do something fun. We just did a, a big coffee appreciation Um, on Friday at Cafe Oasis. And so we want to try to pick a different area, designated area, and see if we need a big to come out for that. All right, we've been speaking with Tracy Anderson and Bethany Ordaz of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Dane County. For more information or to volunteer, you can go to bbbsmadison.org. Thank you both for joining us on the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Thank you so much. Thank you. Every Tuesday, we check in with the Daily Cardinal for the latest news from the UW-Madison campus. 
This week on The Cardinal Call, producer Madeline Afonso spoke with news writer Beth Shoup about a senior class gift to the UW's Center for Health Minds. Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso, joined today by news writer Beth Shoup to talk about this year's senior class gift. Can you explain what your story is about and why you wanted to write about it? Sure. So this story is about the student class office and the the organization that they decided to donate money to as their senior class gift. And so they decided to donate money to the Healthy Binds on Campus, which is an organization that works to support students on campus and give them an outlet to discuss mental health and their different feelings and their different resources in order to help students' mental health. And um, I think this is a really important topic for people to know about because I think it's important for students to know that there are resources on campus that are free and accessible for them if they are feeling like they need help with their mental health. As I learned whenever I was discussing this article with members of this group, mental health is the foundation of the rest of our being and so ensuring that our mental health is healthy and intact is extremely important. For those not familiar, can you describe what the Center for Healthy Minds is and what they do on campus a little bit more? Sure. So the Center for Healthy Minds is a research department that created or what was it was born out of a course on campus. And it's a the art and science of human flourishing. And from there, a student org was created called Healthy Minds on Campus. And so These are organizations that work together to teach students about different mental health practices, things such as meditation and things like that in order to ensure students on campus have a healthy mindset. Why was the Center for Healthy Minds chosen as a recipient of the class gift, especially considering how mental health has become a topic addressed more and more on campus? The reason this organization was chosen was because It was an organization that was created by students and so students on campus who have taken this course and so with the understanding from both the senior class office as well as the leaders of this organization the importance of mental health they all just kind of agreed that this was an important organization for money to go towards so that students are one more aware of the resources available to them but also just the importance of caring for your mental health as a whole. How does the class that you mentioned, the Art and Science of Human Flourishing, taught on campus relate to this new senior class gift funds? So, like I said, this organization was born out of the information that was taught to these students through taking this course. And so, whenever I spoke with the leaders of this organization, they discussed like the the things that they thought were really valuable from the course. And one of the biggest things was the discussion sections and the discussions with peers. They noted how discussing something with a professor is very different from discussing something so personal with peers and they wanted to create an opportunity for students to come to a welcoming environment where they had where they'd have the ability to discuss their mental health and discuss healthy habits with each other as opposed to 
in a more professional, formal setting like a classroom. What did Susan Huber, Director of Wellbeing and Higher Education at the Center, say about that course? So she is the overseer of that course, and she expressed how, like I said, how valuable it is for students. It's only open to first-year students, and she expressed the importance of expanding that through this club to all students on campus because she was the one who mentioned that mental health is the foundation of all of our being and so she wanted to make sure that students are able to learn these different mental health tactics such as meditation at any year or grade level not just as a first year on campus. You also talked about the student club Healthy Minds on Campus that's related to the Center for Healthy Minds. Can you explain what their goals are with the funds from the class gift? So with this, their goals are to one, hopefully be able to travel to other campuses and teach this model to other schools because they found it to be extremely effective. And then also, as I mentioned, they have discussions. They, they're called, um, I can't remember what they're called, but they have these community discussions. And so they bring in guest speakers and they're hoping to be able to bring in paid guest professionals, whereas right now they're bringing in mainly just generous members from the Center of Healthy Minds, different researchers and faculty in order to give these talks to students to teach them about mental health and different practices, but they're hoping to be able to bring in some new experts using the funds that they were given. What's something new you learned or found most interesting while reporting on this story? I personally didn't know about this first year class and so I think that for one thing is very telling is that it's an extremely important course to the point that a ton of research is being done as well as this organization being created and like I said I didn't know about it and I would assume that there are a lot of other students on campus who don't either and then knowing that I found out about this course as a sophomore when my time has already been passed to take this course and to learn these different practices I think it makes it shows the importance of this new student organization and how we need to show other students on campus that these resources are available. And I think making the funds go towards this organization will help market it to students and show them that there are a lot of resources on campus and there are places where people can go if they feel as though they're struggling with their mental health or they just want to learn healthy mental mental health practices. Is there anything else you think listeners should know about this topic? I think people should just know that there are places to go on campus. There are two meetings a month for this student organization, and it's open to anybody. They have, like I said, guest speakers for one of the meetings, and then the second meeting is a, just a large discussion about what the speakers had talked about, but then it can extend into any other mental health areas or any other areas that students would like to discuss about mental health. Thank you so much, Beth, for coming on. Thank you for having me. In other campus news, UW-Madison celebrates the investiture of Chancellor Mnookin. University of Wisconsin-Madison's Chancellor Jennifer Mnookin was formally ranked as Chancellor and the 30th leader of the university at her investiture last Friday morning. The investiture took place at the Hamill Music Center, and there were a variety of speakers, including past chancellors, students, UW system faculty, and Governor Tony Ebers. 
Later that afternoon, students, faculty, and alumni gathered on Library Mall in anticipation of the reveal of Babcock Dairy Plant's newest ice cream flavor, Manuki Dough. The flavor was created to celebrate the investiture of Chancellor Manukin and welcome her as the university's new leader. The new flavor was created in UW-Madison's renovated Babcock Hall Dairy Plant, which recently received upgraded commercial research and educational facilities to continue to support dairy farming research in Wisconsin. Through a combination of public funding sources and approximately $18 million from private donors connected to Wisconsin's dairy industry, the university could complete $72.9 million renovation. Babcock Hall houses the university's Center for Dairy Research, the Department of Food Science, the Babcock Hall Dairy Plant, and the Babcock Hall Dairy Store. The renovations included a three-story addition to the center, modern cheese making and dairy processing machinery, and additional facilities in the building. Along with the facilities, an updated testing kitchen and a new lecture space on the first floor of Babcock Hall were installed. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On tonight's archival edition of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg continues her series on spring babies by taking a look at what to do if you encounter an orphaned baby raccoon. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about the common raccoon. I love raccoons. I think they're really, really neat. Uh, we don't actually rehabilitate them here at our wildlife center, but it doesn't mean we don't appreciate them for the species that they are. We have been a, a wildlife center that historically uh, did initially in our start take a few raccoons for rehabilitation. That was back in 2002. But over time, we did find that we would get so many calls about this species that we actually had a different time being able to rehabilitate any other species, which made us kind of decide to switch our focus to some more of our avian and our reptile species over the years as we are only uh, licensed for those species in, in kind of a nice small region. So for us, the closest other avian rehabilitators might now be in La Crosse or in the Milwaukee area, Lake Geneva. So there's actually very few of us that are out there rehabilitating birds. Um, we are very lucky in Dane County to have a uh, specialist raccoon rehabilitation organization, Wisconsin Wild Care. And so they help us a lot by being able to really uh, care for those raccoons that actually take a long time in rehabilitation from birth to development development to weaning with from their parents as we would not have the ability to house that species uh, based on the hundreds of calls that we get every year about them or be able to actually complete their rehabilitation without making the choice to not rehabilitate any other species. So being a wildlife center that's very large, seeing three to 4,000 animals a year, you know, it's very difficult to make that kind of decision. But, you know, knowing that there are at least other people very close to us that do help raccoons every year is really important. So we're relying on each other on our expertise and caging requirements and uh, knowledge 
knowledge and history of those species to be able to do this. And then also, you know, raccoons are one of those uh, kind of riskier species. So it's one of those species that really a specialist is super important to have to be able to care for them appropriately. They can carry zoonotic diseases, sometimes, you know, considered a high risk rabies vector species here, but also things like distemper or we've got uh, Bayless ascaris, the raccoon roundworm. So there's a lot of things that can, um, you know, obviously be transferred when you have a large volume facility like ours. So again, um, if you ever find a raccoon, the most important thing that you can do is definitely call your local licensed rehabilitator that does work with that species. Now for us, um, obviously, since we are not actually licensed to rehabilitate raccoons, uh, we would ask that you call the Department of Natural Resources here in Wisconsin. They have a toll-free number that you can call for any species. They'll give you a referral to the next closest license holder. And that number is 1-888-936-7463. And I wanted to talk more about raccoons uh, today just because we know that they are being born right now in the environment. Uh, you could find a raccoon that is truly orphaned. Sometimes there are situations where a raccoon might be found in your home, in your attic space, in your chimney. So what the heck do you do when you find yourself in that situation? Well. Okay, so the first thing to talk about is whether or not that raccoon is truly orphaned. And so people will find young raccoons. It could be that their eyes are closed and they're actual true tiny infants, or their eyes are open already, but maybe they're not weaned from their parents. So usually there's about six major scenarios that people run into. The mother is truly gone. So maybe it was trapped, removed, or killed. It could have been yourselves, it could have been a neighbor, and all of a sudden the young can be found in their den. Sometimes it'll be in the ground or some other place that could be, again, left in your house inside of a tree cavity. We've actually seen them in, in cavity holes as well. If you're finding that a, a raccoon is you know, in desperate need, uh, crawling out of its den, dehydrated, starving, crying, and there's no adult around, that can be a, definitely a sign that this is a truly orphaned raccoon. They generally wean after about 12 weeks in the wild, from their parents, but they still will stay with their parents or in the general area for much of the fall into the season until the winter. So, so it's, yeah, sure, they'll start to wean about 12 weeks in rehabilitation. It'll be at least 16 weeks or longer until they would even consider being pre-released. And that's just, you know, on, on everybody's protocol is slightly different. It can be longer than that. So the first reason is that the mother is gone, it's orphaned, she has been removed from the situation. Obviously, those raccoons are not going to survive on their own. So hopefully rehabilitation is the next step. The den site, if it's been disturbed or destroyed, usually it's because of human activity, like you cut down a tree or you're doing some building work and you find raccoons in your den. Your best suggestion there is definitely going to be to try reuniting techniques. So if the parents are still around, we want to keep those raccoons with their parents. Um, so instead of saying, oh, I have raccoons in my house, I hate them, get them out of here, you know, that that's the kind of situation where, you know, Raccoons live in our area. They live in our region. Um, you're not going to really stop raccoons from breeding or being here and their populations are very stable, uh, but we want to help those that we can. So if you have raccoons nesting in your house, you can call your local uh, wildlife company that works with reuniting and renesting techniques like skedaddle wildlife. You can try reuniting yourself, which means gently taking those babies out of the, the den site and leaving it as close as possible to that area so that when you patch up the, the hole or the access point, the mom will hopefully come through and be able to take them back to another backup nest. Other times that you'll find an orphan is that maybe the mom is moving those babies. So maybe they are already being reunited, but the parent has, for some reason, 
you know, been focused on the other siblings. Uh, the siblings can get separated by, you know, especially when you have your dogs outside, maybe they got chased. Maybe they had to drop the baby in the into some area because they were feeling threatened. Or sometimes the parent is trying really hard to move them over an obstacle that causes them to lose it. So if you imagine a raccoon trying to climb a building and it accidentally drops a baby into a dumpster or something or into a window well, you, you might find that she can't or doesn't decide to come back to, to bring it out. Um, so those singles might have to come into rehabilitation. If the den site's too hot, especially prolonged heat in the midsummer season here, then they can leave their den, especially during those daylight hours if it's too warm. So you might accidentally get an orphaned raccoon that way. Or predation of the nest can happen, especially with the very young ones. You know, maybe another predator comes by um, that is able to access the nest and is taking babies away. Sometimes a parent could abandon the babies at that point. Or if, uh, worst case scenario, a family pet brings the baby home, so that's where the dog maybe finds the raccoon. You know, if you're ever having any sort of uh, interaction with a pet and a high-risk rabies vector species, um, that's a conversation to have with our public health departments because, you know, if there's any risk that that any sort of transfer could have happened, especially rabies being a very, you know, scary thing, but um, it's not actually very prevalent in raccoons, at least in our region. So kind of a nice thing that we don't have to worry as much here about it compared to the East Coast. Um, you still want to have that conversation with your veterinarian about what did your, your dog or your cat do? What was the interaction like? Were there bites or scratches that could have, you know, potentially created an exposure event? So, you know, we want to make sure that obviously you know when that animal is truly orphaned, whether that animal can be reunited with its parents, and whether or not rehabilitation is actually truly necessary necessary. So if you do happen to find that truly orphan raccoon in any of those situations or if they were injured, uh, again, calling the DNR so that you can figure out which is the closest rehabilitator in our area to be able to ask for advice or be able to admit to rehabilitation, that's going to be the best bet. So uh, definitely uh, check online. There's some great resources about raccoons in general, about their development from birth to weaning. Uh, again, from birth to, to leaving is about 16 weeks. What to do in those situations where you find it in your house, how to remove them, how to potentially try reuniting and renesting and call your local rehabilitator for advice if needed. So even though we aren't licensed to work with them, uh, I think it's great to talk about in general because who knows what kind of species you'll come across, but just know that you'll be able to hear a raccoon probably before you see it because they are very loud, very uh, chirpy sounds. And if you're ever unsure about what species it is, you know, sending a photo to someone who is an expert who can look at it is also a great way to be able to tell what to do next. So, you know, we're available for that type of consult um, in general or can help refer, but yes, it's, it's definitely that time of year. Okay, great. So that's some information about raccoons in our area. Um, again, the DNR's phone number, if you need to contact them for a referral, is 1-888-936-7463. And then you can also call our Wildlife Center for any other animal in need at 608-287-3235. And again, this has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein Wilson. Your reporters were Abigail Levins and Jessica Lindahl. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz, Madeline Afonso, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Nate Carlin engineered this show. Nate Buggy out produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe wherever you seek podcast audio. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful, up next to Spanish language news with Enrico Patio. Good night.